0: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, podcast listeners, hope you're enjoying your summertime. We have a great show for you today. We got a stock picker in the house. He's a principal portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. Used to be one of our neighbors, still close by, but he joined back in 2011 for that, worked as an analyst on both long and short side hedge funds, Blue Ram, Right Wall, up in that city, New York. Also, going back to the early days of investment blogging, some of the old school listeners may remember the inoculated investor. Welcome to the show, Ben Claremont. Thanks for having me. Ben, what's up, man? It's good to see you. It's been a while. How are things? You enjoy a full summertime in L.A.? I would say relative to being in
1: France where it's 108 degrees or even in, you know, downtown LA where it's much
0: hotter, I think being in the South Bay works pretty well for me. My brother, I think, is leaving today to go to France with his three children of the ages five to like 12 solo. And I said, you're crazy, dude. <laughs> you were crazy. That's a lot of work. I have a hard enough time. I look exhausted just from one two-year-old. Well, look, some of the podcast listeners may know your name. They may know your blog. I'm really sad you at some point just said no mas. The truth of the matter is
1: the blog was a means to an end in the sense that I always wanted to be securities analyst. I was in business school when I started it. For those of you who may not remember it, I was the crazy guy who just tried to take every word of what Buffett and Munger said at the annual meeting at the Berkshire annual meeting. I tried to take down every word and it kind of spiraled into a really interesting opportunity to meet people and to get my name out there. And it was a really fun way to kind of stay in the game while I was in business school. But the goal was always to be kind of an an analyst.
0: You know, it's funny because that time period in markets and in blogging, I mean, I'd beat you by a couple of years. I think I had started writing in 06 but really, that was kind of like the second wave. First wave would have been like Ritholtz back in... I mean, he's old. Back in the late 90s. Love you, Barry. But then, you know, kind of the, the second wave, and now it's everything everywhere. But the name's a little bit of a riff on Buffett, too, for yes. those that are Buffett fans. There's a quote... I think it's actually attributed to Klarman,
1: but I think it might've been Seth Klarman quoting Buffett about how investing's like an inoculation and you either take it or you don't. And I think I read Ben Graham's book, when I was working in the real estate industry and I said, this is me. I was a value investor before I even knew what value investing was. It was in my bones and it was in my blood. And so I decided to try to make a career of it. And so that inoculation really took for me, and it's such a cliche to say a book changed your life, but to some degree, just the exposure to what value investing was really changed my career trajectory.
0: So the real inoculation didn't happen until you were in your 20s, like the full Buffett. I think my inoculation was being like, an extreme gambler my entire life. I had the genetic, not speculation bug, which is why I'm a quant, to keep myself from blowing up all my own money. I think that's what I was inoculated with, but we have some old postcards I had sent my father talking about investing ideas from summer camp once, which sounds like the bougiest thing ever I can think of, but funny to look back on. So I was inoculated with something. I don't know what. It may have been, uh what's it not? Pink eye. What's the one that everyone gets where it's super itchy? Inoculated with chicken pox and, and stock bacon. All right. You want to know a really funny story, which I don't think I've ever told anybody? Yeah. So I was a big baseball
1: card collector back in the day. And this is before I understood what exactly how to value things and what a bubble could look like. But me and my friend in high school, we used to go to the shows and actually be on the dealer side. So I was, from the very beginning, kind of like the guy who was like, I see what this is worth, I want to buy it for less, and then I want to go sell it for more. And so, I mean, from the very beginning, there was an entrepreneurial
0: value investing kind of spirit. I love it. Well, I got the other side, which was learning that markets were rigged because my brother would open up all the baseball card packs. I was young enough to really not know who was good, other than like Daryl Strawberry. And he would essentially go through my cards to help me And then just take all the good cards. (laughs) So it's it's like a high frequency trader today, scalping off your profits. But suspiciously enough, he ended up with a good collection. Although a great funny example, this podcast has already taken a turn. The cards in our collection that are worth by far the most are actually like the ones my mom bought. No interest in cards or collecting. But when buying us stuff, she's like, well, you know, I like basketball so i'm gonna buy some basketball cards just to be cool mom hang out and something to talk about with you guys no one was collecting basketball cards she's got like the jordan rookies you know it's just like the same thing with comic books so i was a comic book guy too and have these boxes and boxes and boxes of comic books from growing up because we used to go on a bunch of road trips they just give me a handful of comic books I here you go just like shut up kid that was the old school ipad was comic books and of course i had this huge collection and sure enough she's like i think we have some comic books in the attic And they're like old Western something. No one's even heard of them, but because they're so old, again, there's like five of them and they're worth more than the entire collection as well. So there's something to be said for luck too. But baseball cards, stadium club, upper deck, I think that kind of was when it hit. It's That was like the equivalent for us of the late 90s internet boom, maybe crypto today.
1: But I think it's a really good example that translates well into financial markets in the sense that baseball cards were these scarce things. And if you look at the Mickey Mantles and the Joe DiMaggio's and the Hank Aaron rookies and things like that, there weren't that many out there. And the proliferation of supply basically destroyed the market. Everyone came out with not even just even back in the 80s, there was Don Russ and Leaf. And there were like five different things that came out. And then by the late 90s, there were everyone was had 20 different collections of sub And so if you look at just the supply and demand, that's what really destroyed the market.
0: We had one of our first guests was a collector trader who helped invent the grading system for baseball cards, PCGS or whatever it's called. We'd asked him on the podcast, I said, Van, why isn't this all computer automated? Why don't you just have a computer to do this? Get rid of human judgment. He said, we'd actually built one. I think he said, we spent like millions of dollars doing it. But people still wanted the human element for whatever reason. I think that may change eventually because there was just like a big scandal recently with someone doing fake grading and something that just came out. Anyway, but interesting ideas nonetheless. But this whole concept of securitizing cards where you say this one's worth a seven, this one's worth a 10. Assuming there's trust in the system makes it easier to trade. But who knows? I'll go dig up my mom's and my cards to to see what they're worth when I go back to Colorado. Let's talk about old school real investing. You still have any cards, by the way?
1: I do. And I'm a little afraid to look at them because I bet they've depreciated significantly in value since they were purchased. Don't spend a lot of time on that
0: these days. We had a funny radio show where we talked about, I'd never heard the story, but Wally Joyner and Dave Bucci, Bucci, what was his name? Had worked with Upper Deck. And I think Joyner got paid like 17 grand, but the other guy took payment in equity and it was worth like $15 million eventually or something. I think it has a story. I can't mastering all these stories. But generally, conceptually, it's the same. So we were talking about this whole concept of get paid in equity rather than salary if you can help it. All right. Let's talk about investing. All right. So you were in school, business school, started writing real estate, then started doing uh, some old school security analysis.
1: Yeah. So my family's in the commercial real estate business. And as I said, I kind of got inoculated in value investing, decided to try to get on the job on the buy side, was lucky enough to be able to get my first job with little, almost no experience other than being self-taught, which is not something easy to do. And I, and I don't know how easy that is to replicate, but I was lucky enough to get a job on the buy side. Timing was terrible right before the financial crisis. And I learned a lot in my first few years, but I really felt like I needed more of a grounding and at least the fundamentals of investing and especially accounting. So I went back to business school and that's when I started the blog and I was lucky enough and and this is another amazing story in my life is that a guy who I didn't even know knew my blog and knew that my boss, Mike, the current founder of Coast Street was looking for an analyst and recommended me. There was a talk about just serendipity on my part, someone who I'd never even met. I mean, I thanked him a lot since that moment, but this was 2011, really hard to get a job at that point. And so I feel very fortunate to have been at coastry for eight years now.
0: We tell people all the time, though. I mean, obviously, we've been doing it for a long time, content of various means, but we get so many inbounds. I'm sure you do, too, on young people looking for jobs and how to go about it, and what to do, regardless of... The fear of it and the getting yourself out there, just creating something like the blog, even if it just acts as like a diary that forces you to express some ideas, do some research, and then put it out in public. Then there's a million different ways to do this now. There's Value Investors Club, some zero, more formalized ways to sort of work through that. Certainly better than probably doing nothing on in 2019 as far as looking for a position. But so let's talk about Cove Street. What are you guys doing? I know the answer to that, but tell our listeners.
1: So Cove Street founded in 2011. Chief Investment Officer is Jeff Bronchick, and he's a 30 plus year veteran in the industry. We're long only value investors, the dying breed We work for a flat fee. We're not the two and 20 guys. So everyone else has a great business model and we're, we're the guys with under the fee pressure all the time. But the greatest thing about Coast Street, I think is culture. We have a 12 person team, nine of 12 of us are partners and five on the investment team, which means that we make partners for people who aren't on the investment team, which I think is just, it speaks to how important the whole system is and having institutional quality back office and great traders. It's really part and parcel to being a good investment manager because institutional clients are not just looking for stock pickers. They're looking for an institution that can survive, take a punch if something happens, or if you lose a client, it's fine. And so we're a little different. We wear shorts on Fridays, closed-toed shoes and collared shirts is the dress code. We have graffiti on the wall. I invite anybody to come to our office and check it out. It's a serious organization, but with a casual feel because we want to have freedom of, for ideas and freedom to express yourself without being closed to the walls and having you know everyone having to wear suits every day.
0: The opposite of our earlier comment about getting paid in equity is if, of course, you're the business, hopefully you didn't pay for the graffiti like Facebook did in equity, where Facebook, what, what was that graffiti artist eventually like $300 million or something? It was originally 60 grand bill where he did the garage door graffiti. that I think was worth $300 million or something. Anyway. All right. So when you say there's two things, one is say long only, hey, that's a great place to be last 10 years. But then you you tack on the other word value, which for many people has been a massive, massive headwind over the past 10 years. Talk to us a little bit about what value means to you guys, because to a lot of different people, it means totally different things.
1: Yeah. So we think of value in two ways, I would say, and that we bifurcate our philosophy and strategies to some degree based on this two ideas of value. And so one's called the Buffett value. And so this would be typical Warren Buffett stock would be a high return on invested capital business, good management. Something that you could buy for a reasonable price, not a great price, but a reasonable price, and you benefit from the compounding over time. And on the other hand, you have a gram value. So that's more of a tribute to Ben Graham. Ben Graham was a net net investor. He was a balance sheet investor. He was willing to invest in mediocre businesses that were very cheap. And so we look at those businesses and hope for a really large margin of safety. So the Buffett is a good business at a reasonable price. Uh, The Grams are a mediocre business to a decent business at a great price. And our whole process is designed to try to figure out what are you investing in? Is this a Buffett or is this a Gram? Because what that does, buying a stock is really easy, but the sell discipline. Is really, really important, I think, to be able to compound capital for the long run. And you have to be very disciplined in how you sell securities. And so the way it works for us is if it's a Buffett and it gets near fair value, you're more likely to hold it because you're benefiting from compounding. Time is your friend. With a gram, when it gets to fair value, we're much more likely to sell it. Because for whatever reason, whether it's customer concentration or cyclicality or some kind of secular decline in one of their businesses, time is not your friend. And so once that- As many times it's not a great business necessarily. So once that margin of safety has collapsed and you have realized the value, you're more likely to sell. And so I think- we have a pretty eclectic view of what value is. And the portfolio, our small cap strategy is a mix of Buffett and Graham's. And now I need to add one little addendum to that. And so the strategy that I co-manage with our founder is our small cap plus strategy. It's called small cap plus because we thought SMID was a bad word to some people. It's basically our small cap strategies, 3 billion and under market cap companies. And uh, our SMID strategy, small cap plus is a billion to 12 billion. So slightly larger companies. And it's a more strategy. How far down the market cap
0: spectrum you go?
1: In terms of the small small cap, we have some small things in small cap. They weren't always that small, but they've gotten smaller over time. But yeah, I mean, I think our core is 100 million to 3 billion in small cap and then a billion to 12 billion in small cap plus. So the strategy that I co-manage is more buffety. I think it reflects my own transition as an investor. As I said, as I started off talking about, I read the Intelligent Investor loved Ben ground's philosophy and said, this is what I want to do for a living. And after doing this for a number of years and having been trapped in businesses that weren't getting more valuable every day, that didn't have great management, that had certain issues, whether they didn't have any diversity of revenues or they had single customer risk or something like that. I just started to feel like value is important, of course, but the business and the people are what are really important. And that's how you compound. You find great businesses that are run by great people, and that's how they compound over time. So I've become much more comfortable paying up for better businesses versus kind of bottom fishing for really cheap securities.
0: I, I think for just mental health reasons, it's easier is the wrong word, but it feels slightly saner. The buffet, because once you find a good company, it's like a flywheel where if it starts hitting on all cylinders, you could foresee owning it for years, decade plus. The Gram stuff often seems there often can be a lot more hair on it or warts or it's just like, it's like being a short seller. It's like, you know, it's going to be hard. You know, you're, you're going to be fighting people. You know, it's not just feels like it's a lot more work. But anyway, both are certainly good fits. And probably I imagine, I don't know if you've teased it out or not, that there's a fair amount of diversification benefits, maybe too on where you end up fishing between the Graham and Buffett ideas, whether they may or may not be uh, exposed to the same sort of economic cycle or macro factors. I don't know if it, uh, when you put all the cookies into the, all the ingredients into the cookie batter, if it matters, but walk us and we'll kind of talk about this as we go, but walk us through the whole investment process. How do you guys find your ideas all the way to Doing the research and then kicking them out one day, hopefully 100 bags later.
1: Yeah, happy to do that. So let me just start with portfolio construction because it'll frame the process a little bit. So we run concentrated portfolios. Our general time horizon is three to five years. Ideally, we'd own these things forever. I mean, I think this is a buy and hold strategy for sure. And we start with a screening process that is trying to find good combinations of business value in people. Those are our three pillars. And so where do ideas come from? I would like to say it's pretty eclectic. So we do run screens. We run cap IQ populated screens that run every weekend. We come in on Monday morning and we discuss what's on those screens. We also take a fair number of management meetings, which is it wasn't necessarily intentional, but being located about eight minutes from LAX gives you the uh, hey management teams in town. They don't have anything to do at four o'clock. Come see Coast Street meeting, which is you know always really interesting. And then we have Jeff Bronchek, our founder, has been in the business for 30 plus years. I mean, the institutional knowledge there combined with the rest of the team is very deep. And then I think another really interesting way that we find companies is we start researching company X and we do the work. We understand the industry. We understand the people. And we kind of get a sense like, no, no, this is not the right one. Their competitor is the good one. And so you use your research in an industry to figure out what the, who the best player is. And so let's assume that that's what we call the stage one of our process, which is our idea generation. And then stage two is what we call qualify. And this is where you are trying to figure out what is the security is this a Buffett or is this a Graham? Because it's going to determine the margin of safety required when you wanna buy it. It's gonna determine, we wanna preset our sell discipline, kind of understanding what you're going to do when it gets to fair value because you don't wanna have to figure that out when it happens. And so this is where we are Reading 10Ks, reading 10Qs, reading conference calls. This is kind of the preliminary look. Our research gets much deeper in our stage three, but this is just to try to determine what kind of business it is. And so our stage three is our deep dive. And what I think is a little bit unique about our process is that we have a team tackle structure. So what that means is that we have a five-person investment team. Every idea that has a potential to move forward has to have two longs, two people who are advocates, and then one short. So we build in the devil's advocate. So why do we do that? The reason we do that is because...
0: Is the short always the same person?
1: That is the question I would say out of all the questions we get, that is the most common question. And so this is the way I'll answer that. Sometimes people are jumping up and down to be the short. If there's anything that we've built, it's a culture that allows people to express themselves. It allows people to accept and give criticism without fear of retribution. And I think-
0: Sounds like you have the Bridgewater dot
1: app. I I wouldn't (laughs) say like that radical transparency, The, the Bridgewater motto is quite good description of us. I just think we're really comfortable with each other and we've created and the process- breeds discussion and sometimes there's dissension and sometimes we have to fight it out but I would say it's very rare that anything gets taken personally I mean maybe like a couple times in our history has that ever happened and we're all close-knit and we can work it out and that's the way it's been and then sometimes to answer your question sometimes everyone kind of tries to walk out the room when Jeff or I'm looking, you know, who's going to be the short because it's such a good business at a compelling valuation that who wants to try to short this? But we build this in to be able to cut what Greenblatt says, calls killing the idea. This is Joel Greenblatt. Kill the idea. Have someone whose job it is to be the short, be the devil's advocate, come up with reasons why we shouldn't own something. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're in a concentrated portfolio with a long-term time horizon, you should be passing on more things than not. And if you're passing on nine out of 10 or 19 out of 20 ideas, there should be a really high hurdle. And part of that high hurdle comes from having the short.
0: By the way, just real quick, the portfolio ends up being what, like 30, 40 names?
1: So in our small cap strategy, 30 to 39. In our small cap plus strategy, 20 to 29. Small cap plus strategy, there's more liquidity in these stocks and it allows for a little more concentration. And you're also by large, investing in better businesses. So a little bit more concentration is justified.
0: Back to the process, the short, it's more of a duck, duck goose, not the one crazy person all the time doing it. What happens then? You guys debate it. Is it a vote? How's it go down?
1: So in our small cap strategy, Jeff has been running the strategy since I think 1992. He's a portfolio manager and he makes a final decision. But the interesting thing about our process is that it's designed to mitigate behavioral biases. We build in all of these checklist items in order to mitigate, to diminish the number of times that you can be biased by outside influences. And our final decision making process and our step four of our process really embodies that. And so let me explain. And so anybody who's worked on the idea, so let's call it two longs and one short, everybody weighs in on the decision. So it's not just that there's a lead analyst who's doing all the work and just throws the idea up to the portfolio manager and magically it either gets in the portfolio or it doesn't. Everybody has to weigh in. And why do we do that? Because we don't want to be subject to hindsight bias in the future. So what is hindsight bias? Hindsight bias, an example of that would be three years later, someone notices that a stock they talked about in the past has gone from 10 to 40 and then goes back and says, hey, I said we should have bought that at 10. There's no record of it. It's all he said, she said. Well, we record all of our decisions. And so that we can say, you know what, actually, you didn't. You said we shouldn't buy it. Or that's right, you were
0: right. And then we can relook at our process and see what did we miss here? Do you guys do like a New Year's highlight and blooper reel like SportsCenter where it's just, it's like <laughs> Ben pitching some stock that just goes to zero. And everyone's like, this is so dumb. You're like, no, this sounds amazing. I swear we should short Beyond Food at, you guys don't do any short. Yeah, food, we but, don't do short. Really. Uh, I swear we should buy Beyond at 220. $14 billion market cap.
1: Thankfully, nothing I've ever recommended has gone to zero. But it's more that we chide each other. But in all seriousness about it, it allows you to go back and look at what you were thinking. And especially if it's something you own, you can go back a few years later and say, where have we been right in our original investment premise? And where have we been inaccurate? And so by recording all your decisions and doing that over time, so every decision node in the future, you're also recording your decisions. It allows you to understand what you were thinking at that time and look at systematic biases in your process over time. And then the other interesting thing that happens is that when we are recommending an idea, the portfolio manager goes last. And why is that? Because what he wants our unvarnished opinion. He doesn't want what he's going to do to influence our opinion. So if he said, yeah, I think we should own this, then maybe depending on the culture, maybe I'm saying, oh, yeah, of course, just follow the boss. And he doesn't want that. He wants to really know what we think. And if there's anything about our culture, nobody is shy about sharing what they
0: think. So let's say it makes it to that point where you guys have identified, presented I guess the next step, you buy it. What is the thinking? You alluded to this. I don't know you guys if you guys do this, but many, many investors probably spend, I don't know, 95% of their time on everything that leads up to the buy decision. And then that's kind of it. But thinking of the sell decision before you initiate the position is probably... As important if not more. So how do you guys think about that? Are there, you mentioned maybe price targets, you mentioned, how do you think about the concept of getting out particularly ahead of time?
1: Yeah. So we preset our sell discipline. And as I mentioned, it depends on whether it's a Buffett or a Graham. And so let's think about why we sell. So the best example is you buy something, it gets bought by a larger company, and that's an easy one. And so that doesn't matter whether it's a Buffett or a gram. For a gram, there are two things you're looking for. One, you're looking for the margin of safety to be closed by price appreciation. And if you've determined this is a gram, you're a seller. The harder part comes when it's not working. When the stock goes down, for example, it was really, really cheap. And now it's really, really cheap. <laughs> maybe another at another really. And so the answer to that is you are re-looking at all of your work to determine whether the business model has suffered some kind of permanent impairment has there been permanent impairment of capital has there something changed about either your understanding of the industry your understanding of the people or understanding of the individual business that would cause you to say whatever it is it's not working and our original premise was wrong because i would say one of the hardest things to do is to buy a gram when it's going down a buffet if you think it's getting more valuable every day You're almost excited when it goes down, but with a gram, it's not. And so what we really want to see is is something fundamentally changed about the business model.
0: The challenge of that is there's always this like doubt creeping in of what did we miss? What does the market know? What do the insiders know? What does someone know that this keeps going down that we've overlooked? And it's that feeling of omission that's like in the pit of your stomach. The half of you that feels, hey, we know this better than anyone. We're happy this is going down. We can buy more. But to me, there's always that feeling of, oh God, what do we miss? <laughs> is there's is there something out there that we've clearly just skipped over and we're just taking it?
1: There's nothing more painful than buying a stock after it's gone down. And I think you have to be really selective given the securities you'll do that with. My sense as a Buffett-oriented investor is that you want to do that with businesses that you think are unequivocally getting more valuable every day and if you have concerns about it i think you need to be much more careful doubling down when a stock is down and so getting to your question when do we sell a buffet we sell a buffet when it gets to a valuation that is just absurd and we may talk about this a little bit in terms of what's going on in the market but that's one of the challenges with a buffet oriented strategy right now is that we see really good businesses that are growing, that have really nice moats and good management teams. We see them trading evaluations they've never traded at and multiple, multiple turns over their historical numbers. And that makes us a little nervous because you can, as Nifty 50 will tell you, just because you're investing in good businesses doesn't mean that you're going to make money. You still, the price, the only thing you can determine is the price you pay. I
0: think that's a, a lesson that's really hard For particularly younger investors to learn, which is you could have a great business, but you still got to pay attention to the price. And Munger, I think, talks a lot about this. He's like, look, if it's growing really fast, you can kind of grow into that price. But if you pay a really high price, it's hard. It just sets the bar so high that you have to have this amazing business just crush it. But that's the challenge. You kind of led into this. Maybe talk to us a little bit about. What does the world look like in 2019? You've been at this for, man, almost a decade at Cove Street. What's changed? Nothing changed. Everything changed. What's been going on in the world? Well, as you highlighted,
1: value investing is somewhat out of favor. If you just look at the Russell 2000 growth versus Russell 2000 value, growth hasn't outperformed in every single period over the last 10 years. But on a whole, over the last 10 years, it has just been a stomping when it comes to growth versus value. And I think the other thing that's really changed and influences us is the move from active to passive. When the S&P 500 or the index has done really well, institutional investors, for good reason, question why they should be paying active management fees. And the simple answer to that is that, let's see what happens the next time there's a downturn. Because that's when you remember that if you invest in managers who are able to protect capital in a down market, That's where they can add a lot of value. But we haven't seen very many down markets. And I think we saw Q4 2018, just a little glimpse of what it would look like. And I would say after management, by and large, did pretty well from what I've seen over that period of time. So there have been a number of headwinds. And as I talked about valuations broadly, maybe somewhat stretched in the really good businesses we own. But let me say this. Value investing, and I just, if you're interested, covestreetcapital.com and our blog, I just published the quarterly letter I wrote. And one of the questions that we keep getting from any number of different areas is, is value investing dead? Is this a strategy that no longer works? And my simple answer to that is that value investing is not one thing. Buying an asset for less than it's worth, buying something for less than its intrinsic value is, is evergreen because there will always be opportunities to do that in different markets, at different times, at different cycles. And so if you're asking, is Ben Graham's style of investing potentially no longer a valid strategy? Yeah, I mean, how many net nets do you see in the market these days? I mean, where do you find an investment that's purely a good investment just based on the strength of the balance sheet and the value on the balance sheet? We don't see much of that. But when you are investing institutional assets, in concentrated portfolios you don't need that many new ideas so stocks can be expensive broadly but if you only need one or two new ideas a year you can find them and where do you find ideas these days i would say anything tied to china has gotten cheap if you want to touch the auto sector in any way shape or form (laughs) just about anything that touches auto is cheap domestic us industrials are starting to be a little more interesting look there are some cyclicality across all of that and so what you want to do i think is you want to own really good businesses that are quote-unquote gross cyclicals things that are getting more valuable over time but they have these bouts of cyclicality just based on what happens on the end markets and you can buy them ideally you kind of buy at a half position now and then you buy it on the way down find a business that you get excited to buy on the way down so that's it's a broad view of the market. I mean, we come in every day without a lot of thought about the macro. You know, and I could talk about this within our process. We definitely, certainly, with every single idea, think about how the macro could impact it. But we don't come in thinking, oh, we hate the market, we should be in cash, or we're worried about what the Fed's gonna do. These are all inputs into our decisions, but really it's a bottom-up portfolio, looking for securities that are getting more valuable every day, finding stocks and companies that are run by really good people. Those people take advantage of downturns. Everyone else gets afraid of the cycle and these people are prepared for it. They have a great balance sheet and they're scooping up all the competitors. And so getting to the broader point is value investing will always have a place and there will be a time when being a value investor doesn't look like you are out of touch with the market.
0: You touched on a couple of interesting points. One I was laughing at because you talk about the macro influences and your methodology is frankly the way that it should be you've seen so many instances where a lot of old school stock pickers get bigger, they start to get influenced and start to make macro, more macro bets. The most famous course would probably be Julian Robertson in the late 90s. But but <laughs> I don't know if it's Joe Weisendahl or someone else who coined the original phrase macro bullshitters. But I say like, you want your stock picker they can write in the letter and they can gossip about it at happy hour, but that's the extent the macro should should start to creep in because it's so, so hard. Discretionary macro has to be the hardest thing on the planet. I can't imagine. And a couple of things I thought was pretty interesting. One is I look over y'all's portfolio. I love it because my favorite portfolios of firms to look at have a bunch of names that I've either never heard of, or they just like sound so boring where you're like, it's got like an acronym and it's a name. Your number one holding is a holding we actually wrote about on the wall up there years ago, at least in the mutual fund, it may be dated. I know it was a long time holding of Bowpost, which is a fun one. But are there any sort of, you mentioned a couple sectors. Autos is really interesting. That's one of those sectors that I feel like has such tectonic forces happening. With 10 years from now, Who knows what we're all gonna be zooming around in. I doubt our children are probably gonna even ever learn to drive other than on like a, a farm or amusement park at some point, I don't know. Anything else popping up you think is interesting, worth a look, something you should shy away from? I think broadly what you should be really
1: careful of are businesses that have been doing extraordinarily well basically since the end of the cycle. It's kind of the 2009 period. It has been an unabated rise in margins, in multiple, in expectations. And people have forgotten that there was some cyclicality and there is cyclicality in every business. I think what we've seen is just these businesses that get this halo and they trade at multiples that I don't think are justified, even how great the business is, because no one is immune. And there's going to be a time where you suffer the double whammy of, Reduce expectations, reduce cash flows. And then, well, all of a sudden, you're not going to be afforded that same multiple. And so I think you want to be, you know, it's, again, it's like the nifty 50 curse. Is the, and this is what we see in the market. Things get incredible, stocks get incredible valuations, and the multiple continues to expand until they hit an earnings speed bump. And then it's just, we see it down 20 or 30%, right? These are the market has become very skeptical and skittish about things that are no longer on this trajectory that was always unattainable. But whatever it is, you want to blame it on low interest rates. You want to blame it on whatever it is. There's this demand for these
0: great businesses. The Fed, you can blame it on the Fed. Yes. (laughs) Today was a Fed day. So you guys manage about a billion dollars. You have a very institutional business. So listeners, unless you got 10 million to allocate, the good news is there's a mutual fund. But have you noticed any difference in the behavior or flows or anything between being a institutional, as well as a more public offering. Do you guys have any general comments? When did the mutual fund launch? That was well after the start of the firm though, right?
1: No, no, we've, Jeff Bronchick manages mutual fund for a long time. I think our track the mutual fund goes back to the nineties. So oh, wow. I mean, this is, right. there's a long track record here of Jeff being in charge of this mutual fund. You know, I think we, Cove Street was designed to be more of an institutional firm. We could have gone either way. or You could have a hybrid. I think what we wanted as a firm is we wanted fewer clients, fewer relationships, more meaningful. I mean, our favorite clients are the ones who beat us up for two years before they make an investment because we want people who to understand who we are. We're concentrated value investors. And what does that mean? That means that at certain times our returns are not going to look anything like the markets. And sometimes we look really really smart and at times we look kind of silly. And especially if you're measuring us on a quarterly basis, you're going to see a fair amount of what's, you know, what they call tracking error and we are going to have a really high active share and these are things that it's endemic to our strategy. And so I think the way we were structured and the way we have limited the number of people out there selling Us and marketing, we just really wanted to have a bunch of clients who knew us, who were willing to write decent size checks, and then we'll service a small number much better than we could a much broader institution. And so I think to be in the retail world, I mean, you do something a little different with the ETF, but like to have a lot of mutual fund coverage and to have that be on every platform, you know, you need a fairly large sales team and we want to be investment led as opposed to marketing led. From the very beginning of Street, we had a goal of getting to a certain level in our small cap strategy and closing. That was our goal, to close. I mean, I don't know many people who start their firm with the idea to close, but the reason you do that in small cap is if you get too large, you lose the ability to invest in smaller companies, things that are illiquid, things that are misunderstood or underappreciated that other people aren't paying attention to. And so the firm was designed not to be an asset gatherer. And so that's why we've kind of chosen the institutional route. And for no, without any question, it is hard when you want to have meetings with the top endowments. You can get the meetings, but get them to pay attention to you. Get them to—they want to watch you for three years. They want to see. They really want to understand how the beast moves, which is great. And we like to see that. And we maintain relationships with these people so that when their asset allocation changes and small cap value is all of a sudden in favor, we're going to be at the top of a list. And so you position yourself for those moments.
0: All right. Summer 2019. Anything else you guys are looking at? So as I mentioned,
1: business value and people are our three pillars. And we haven't really touched on this to the degree that would reflect how important it is in our process, but the people part is really something that we think about every day. It is something we try to understand with great depth. So corporate governance is something that is a huge part of our process, understanding corporate governance. And so what does that mean? That means understanding people's motivations, understanding people's histories, understanding board dynamics, doing everything you can to try to not quantify, but understand the unquantifiable. I was fortunate enough to be able to participate in the uh, undergraduate value investing program At UCLA, Bill Simon, who I think is probably best known for running for governor of California, is in charge of the value investing program with UCLA undergrads. And I've developed a relationship with him. And as I said, I was fortunate enough to be able to spend three hours teaching the students about value investing. And he has Howard Marks come to speak to them. And I can't compete with that name cachet. But what I thought I could do is I could give them exposure to something that they don't have exposure to, which is the process of trying to understand management and the board and through the lens of the proxy statement, which we think is probably the most underused public filing that exists out there.
0: So let's unpack that. Explain what the proxy statement is to all the listeners and why they should uh, get excited about reading it? Well, I would never say a proxy
1: <laughs> statement it is an exciting thing to read. It is a gold mine of information about people's incentives, but it's not something that's stimulating in the same way that reading about the business or listening to Jim Cramer talk about stocks. It's not, it, there's no excitability in it. What it is, is a list of different compensation and governance policies that we fundamentally believe are going to dictate the direction of the company. So let me unpack that a little bit. So if you want to understand what someone's going to do within the corporate context, you can know based on how they're compensated. We scrutinize the proxy statement to understand where their comp is derived from. Is it based on earnings per share? Is it based on the stock price? Or is it based on things that we really care about, such as free cash flow, return on invested capital? These are the things that we think drive value over time. And if you're making an investment in a company that where the CEO is only compensated on something like quarterly earnings, well, you know what that person's going to do that person's incentive is gonna be to maximize quarterly earnings, potentially at the expense of the long run. And so we wanna see structures and organizations that incentivize people to invest for the long run. Now, we want people to have some return hurdle for that investment baked into their compensation, but we don't want people to be focused on just making next quarter's numbers and not investing in R&D. And so three years from now, you have a dry pipeline. And so the proxy statement, just reading one of them, You're not going to get much context, but when we vote every single proxy that we get, and we have a program where the person, there is a single person in charge of voting all of the proxies. And so that person gets exposures to dozens and dozens of proxies and gets to be able to compare across the proxies. And just to see, like, how are different people compensated? How are they incentive? What are the different corporate governance structure? And when you read that many of them, you start to get a feel for what's good corporate governance, what's a good comp structure, and what's totally off and potentially distorting in a certain way.
0: It seems... Given all the rhetoric and everything the politicians are talking about today, I often say that it seems fairly misguided that the boogeyman is buybacks, which is what they've all glommed onto. And I don't understand why more focus isn't at the board level. For example, why in the world companies still in 2019 link compensation to say share price or EPS? That just seems like such a crazy thing to do that just comes up with Weird incentives. I, I don't see why there's not more focus on that or why companies continue to do it, other than maybe it's in some board proxy how to manual from like 20 years ago.
1: If there's a boogeyman, it should be the quarterly earnings cycle. The idea that people are measured based on what happens every 90 days. Businesses and their intrinsic value do not change that greatly in 90 days, but the stock market, based on the reaction to missing earnings by a penny, would suggest to you that businesses change very rapidly. Now, that's an opportunity for value investors, but you have to be really careful to make sure that the business that you're looking at and the company you're looking at have the right incentives. And so if you, as you're saying, if you're incentivized based on EPS, What's a great way to boost EPS is just to buy back your stock. But what if there's a better use of that capital? What if there are acquisitions you can make? What if you should be investing aggressively in R&D, actually depressing your EPS because you have an incredible product or solution for your customers, but you're not incentivized that way? And so I think what all this means and getting to what I said to the students is like, this is a really, really hard thing to quantify. Like if you think about the business, you can quantify a good business, good returns, good margins if you want to talk about a value right that's a number right like the margin of safety is a quantifiable number is management good or bad is a very difficult thing to quantify and what I told the students is that just because it's hard doesn't mean you can ignore it you have to run through a checklist of things to try to determine whether these people are friend or foe and I think Cove Streets we see ourselves as suggestivists which is different from an activist. We don't wake up every day thinking that we want to cause trouble in boardrooms. That's just, it's a very, I think, nerve-wracking way to live. What we'd have is we have a very open dialogue with the companies that we invest in about governance, about compensation. We know we're not smart enough to tell people how to run their businesses, but we do think we know a little something about the way to structure a comp plan, about how to have proper corporate governance from a board level. These are things that we think that, you know, when you read this many proxies, when you've been in the business as long as as I have and and, and, as Jeff Bronchik has, right? I think we we feel like we have a pretty good sense. And the other thing is we invest in a lot of companies and we read Lots and lots of filing. so we can compare across industries, across companies, in a way that management teams might not be able to. With board members, might not be have kind of the understanding of.
0: I'm always surprised this sort of thing isn't more boilerplate as far as what's commonly accepted good behavior, where you have these outliers and you're like, Look, what are you guys doing? Uh, how often is it the case you're like, Look, this is a good business, and I actually think this is good management, but this structure is just garbage? and you reach out to them and be like, you guys, what's the deal? And they're like, open to your suggestions. Does that never happen? Or is it fairly regular? Or what's the process when you're advising I would say it's mixed, but you'd be surprised
1: at how many times it's just, it's not even neglect. This is one thing that I, I think people really need to understand. Most of the time, the bad things happen, good things happen. So much of it is based on luck and circumstance, and very rarely is it based on malice, for example. What we see on boards is a lot of inertia. Some comp consultant seven years ago came up with a comp plan, and no one's really looked at it. We see this especially in smaller companies. We feel like we can add a lot of value as a shareholder of a smaller company to just write a very simple letter to the board and say, hey, you know what? This is... We like you guys when we talk to you, you say the right things, but your proxy and your structure doesn't match what you say. And my guess is people don't tell you this. My guess is other people see this mismatch and they turn it, they say, well, why would we invest with these guys? We raise our hand and say, Hey, if you guys are doing a good job, why wouldn't we just, why wouldn't it be reflected in the proxy and in the compensation? And I would say, a fair amount of time, people are receptive to that. I mean, I think it's about how you do it. If you've come to them like a partner, like you're a shareholder, you're a partner, and and you're not an activist, and you're not telling them to fire the CEO and buy back stock. No, this is about just making sure that the way that the business is run, people can be compensated well if it's successful, as opposed to you know maybe incentivizing the wrong outcomes. And so I, I would say it's surprisingly easy to get management here if you have reasonable expectations and suggestions
0: there are any particular bad examples to come to mind as you've been going through these where you're like oh my god that doesn't even make sense i'm going to give you one
1: and i'm not going to name the company come on. Um, and it's <laughs> and i'm sorry if this is going to be a little bit in the weeds for some of your listeners but i think meb you'll really appreciate this so there's a common practice on Wall Street where if you want to put out some information that other that you don't want people to see you either put it out on a Friday or you put it out during the holidays Christmas or New Year's where you think that all the investors are gone and no one's going to notice that you put something out so a company that we're involved with put out a filing the press release was December 28th but it didn't actually get filed until um until like January 2nd so this is like no man's land in terms of no one's paying attention. Everyone's still hung over from the holidays. And so they said in the press release that the CEO was going to get a bonus for selling a couple businesses. Now, the issue, of course, was that they're selling this businesses almost in distress. This isn't like, hey, we had this great business that people were undervaluing and we, you know, we separated it out and we're getting a great multiple for it. No, they needed to delever. This should have been part of being the CEO. This is part of your job. This is not a special bonus moment. So we saw this press release. We asked them about it. And then we expected to see the filing when it came out, when the first quarter 10Q came out. Wasn't there. So that's surprising. Well, what about the proxy statement? Well, it wasn't in the proxy statement because the payment was in 2019. The proxy statement that just that came out recently only covered 18. So it's not in there. And then to make matters worse, when we asked them why it wasn't in the queue, even though the bonus had been paid in Q1, it was buried in what's called discontinued operations, which is a kind of a catch-all line where you can bury things from businesses that you're selling or that you're no longer operating. And so if you weren't paying attention, there was a major, you know, a very significant bonus that would suggest to you that these people have a distorted view of what shareholders care about that will not maybe never seen. We'll see if it's in the proxy that comes out next summer. But, you know, it'll basically be hidden for
0: a year and a half. What I don't understand is like you think in 2019, this day and age, it's almost like doing a press release or announcement Friday night or the holidays is like a red flag. It's like everyone's watching now. We had Michelle from Footnoted. She was a early guest on the podcast. And she's like, that's literally my job As I sit there and read all these and flag them and post them in my newsletters and Twitter. I was like, if I would do it, I'd probably do it on like Monday now. Get off cycle <laughs> it's to where you're not going to red flag it. But it's so funny that people still do things like this.
1: I would say that and not to denigrate other people in our industry, but unfortunately, a lot of people get their information from Southside. The Southsiders they are conflicted, in the sense that they want access to management, they want to take them on road shows, they want to be able to call and ask them questions. And so, if they criticize a bonus that came out in December twenty eighth, they may get blackballed, or they may you know they may not be able to take them on the road show this year. And so, what happens is. If they're your gatekeeper, there's a potential you have to recognize a conflict, and they may not be willing to criticize management, they may not be willing to point out things that happen like this. And so that's why you have to read every filing. Because companies, and this is part of the corporate governance, companies will bury things in what's seemingly an innocuous 8K, which is just a kind of a quarterly intra-quarter filing. They will say, hey, yeah, we hired a new chief commercial officer. And then at the bottom of the press release they say, oh, we're also taking a $50 million charge for bad debt, like just com- something completely out of left field. And so you have to read every filing. And Michelle, we've talked to Michelle before. She will always have a job until the AI comes and is able to read every financial statement and solve problems for you.
0: Listen, companies, Ben and Michelle will find you. There's no way to hide any of these things. I think the best description I've heard of the sell side is they do a very good job of describing a lot of what is the base case well known at a company. It's like, this is what pretty much everyone understands and well known. It's like going that extra distance where you'll find things that, whether for malice or not, are hidden or buried or just not focused on, et cetera. But proxy statement, man, I don't even think we've covered proxy statement in the 170 episodes yet.
1: Just getting on that. So when I went into the UCLA class, I asked the students, how many of you have ever read a... I assigned them two proxy statements to read. I said, how many of you had ever read a proxy statement before that? And I think one out of 30 raised their hand. It's just... And the funny thing is... The one was confused and thought you were talking yeah, yeah. about something else. Yeah, yeah. No, someone else thought You know, this... It's not just about the proxy. The proxy is kind of the manifestation of, of a lot of things. But really what it is, is is having a checklist like we have of corporate governance items and going through that one by one as you try to determine whether these people are going to be and we joke about this but we're kind of serious are they stealing for you or are they stealing from you and you really want to understand that especially if you're taking a three to five year time horizon ideally forever time horizon i think the business is going to drive a lot of what happens and determine a lot of your returns but think how much If you're a CEO for 10 years, how much of the company's asset base will you allocate over that 10 year period? And if you don't have a capital allocation framework that is grounded in return on invested capital that is grounded on generating free cash flow, there's a potential that you could totally misallocate that capital and destroy a a really good business. I have a couple quotes here from Buffett that joke about that, you know, you want a business that's really easy to run because eventually, you know, someone who's incapable will run it. Those aren't the words he uses, but I'm- You I'm par- idiot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> idiot. Uh, I'm being I mean, a little- it more, eventually will. I'm being a, a little nicer about it. But I mean, and some people might look at that and say, well, Buffett's saying that the manager doesn't matter. And that's not what he's saying. Because if you go to the Berkshire meeting, they spend a huge amount of time- Talking about how important the Berkshire managers are, and they, you know, they, every one of them gets a little shout out on their in the video because Buffett always wants to partner with a people with integrity, b people who have a long term time horizon, and people who work well in a really disaggregated, decentralized organization. And so they, he talks a lot about how important partnerships are, and, and he has an unbelievable advantage to when they buy businesses to be able to know the management team and understand them and see the books. We don't have that opportunity, so what we have to do is we have to dig in as many different crevices as we possibly can to understand. And what does that mean? That means we're calling former employees. That means we're asking people for references. That means we're reading the conference calls from when they were CEO at another company. It means we're just trying to go through as many different data points as possible. I see investing as kind of like painting a mosaic. And especially within this understanding management, you're putting as many dots on the canvas as you possibly can to hope that once you've collected enough data points, you have a view. There's a Picasso in front of you that you can actually say with some reasonable certainty that these people are either friend or foe.
0: That's really well said. For me, that was always a hard dealing with management. It It's easy to get, in my case, fooled, but also at the same time, you know, it's funny when you're talking about doing the work. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've been doing due diligence and this isn't even with securities, but with service providers, with companies that we want to partner with anything. I'll be like, okay, cool. We've gone through the whole process. I'm like, send me three references, current and past, two of each, whatever. And then they just fall off like won't even send in references they're like you know i'm done (laughs) you know like i'm not even i'm not gonna even send in i'm just ending this process now i mean that has happened multiple times in the past year we've spent like hours and hours going through this i'm like all right send me some references and then they're just like goodbye which seems crazy but like it's a question that a lot of people don't ask that would be a huge red flag for us i think if you couldn't if you'd made it
1: to be a public company CEO, and you didn't have anybody who would vouch for you. It takes a lot to get there, right? And we probably had to climb any number of ladders to get there. And if you have stepped on every person in that path, I don't think that you're the kind of partner we'd want to be.
0: Go back to crevice digging. What are some other resources that you guys, it could be software, conferences, books, books, Airplane magazines, anything. What are some things that you guys use in your process you think is particularly useful? So we are
1: prolific users of LinkedIn, where we go on LinkedIn and find either mostly former employees of the company or people who work with the management team. And we reach out to them. And you'd be shocked at how many people are... Just totally happy to talk about their former employers or their former boss. And so that's a really good venue for getting totally unvarnished thoughts on people.
0: The only reason I log into LinkedIn is to log on, read the seven spam messages, log off. (laughs) Yeah, LinkedIn is
1: a goldmine. The other thing we do, we use expert networks pretty regularly as well. And I think expert networks get a bad name in the sense, just mainly because of the things that happened with Gerson Lerman and all of, you know, insider trading stuff. And look, there are certain people who want to talk and find inside information. We have no interest in inside information. What we want is we want to understand the business better. We want to understand the people better.
0: It's almost like therapy for a lot of these people too. They're like been waiting for someone to let them complain about their boss or crappy former company or Competitor industry, or whatever. It's like it should almost be like a free expert network and just call it therapy. You know, you
1: know what the funny (laughs) thing is, Meb? I would say more often than not. People have very glowing things to say about their former company. And so you you have to be very careful of bias on either side. Either you could have a disgruntled person or just someone who does not have an unbiased view of the management team or the company. So I think you need to talk to enough people that, you know, you're never going to, we can't, we don't have the resources to talk to a thousand people, but we can talk to five or 10 and get a sense of what people think of the management team, but even more so the business. I think one of the things that we get from this is not just a very cursory understanding, but what is their actual go-to-market strategy or what are their customers? Like you get a really, when you talk to somebody, especially who's not in the C-level, but somewhere up in management, but not at the C-level, I think you get in the weeds more with these people. And so that when you are developing your narrative about the business, you're much more fluent in what they actually do, as opposed to what they write in the 10K, which is not necessarily distorted, but you just can't write your whole business model in an annual filing, it has to be. It has to be a summary.
0: As you think about these actual interviews, too, a lot of people will go through this very light heart. They're like, "Oh, I just got to check the box. I'm going to talk this reference or try to get some information." And it's very important the kind and types of questions that people ask, because like a lot of people will, you know, ask me. Maybe they'll call, like, ask for a reference. They'll be like, "How do you know so and so?" Was he a great employee? And I'm like, dude, I'm just going to give you the. Here's a good example of a great question to ask. And they're like, you clearly like this person, but for someone who doesn't like this person, like, what would they say about them? And I'm like, oh, that's a. And I went on for like, I'm like, oh my god, this is what they'd say. I wouldn't say this, but a lot of people. And after like two minutes, like, I can't believe I just volunteered that information. <laughs> it's, it's like that's such a good question. It's not a trick, but it's a behavioral, thoughtful way of getting the information you want that might. Most people wouldn't think that that you got to actually think about the. Is it almost like an interrogation tactic? So we ask almost solely. Except
1: when you're talking to CFO and you want to understand some numbers question, we ask only solely behavioral questions. What if's? What would you do if this happened? If this is when we're talking to management. Or if I gave you a uh, hundred million dollars in capital, what would you do with it? I mean, we want to get. We want to understand how people think. And when we're talking to People who used to work for the manager, you know, with either a company or a management team, it's all about behavioral questions. Like, so, A, why did you leave the company? Did you leave on good terms? Was it a good company to work for? So those are the standards. But then let's dig a little deeper. Where are their strengths? Where are their weaknesses? Would you work for them again? These are the kind of things we want to understand so that, you look, people could just check the box in an interview like this. Oh, this person liked them. They thought they were smart. But what does that mean? What are their strengths? Are they good with people or are they kind of command and control? What is their style? So these are the things we're trying to understand. And from, if you're looking at this process and asking yourself like, what in the world is all of this for? What do you get out of all of this? And I can't say, there's no, one of the hardest things investing is to, and being a professional investor is allocating your time. And so I could see someone looking at that at us and saying, All the time you spend trying to understand management, is it worth your time? And I would say unequivocally, yes, because if you're looking for a partnership, you're looking for a three to five year partnership, you want to understand what people's motivations are. You want to understand their style. You want to understand the depth of their knowledge about the business. Are they kind of the high level guy or are they in the weeds? And these are things that are important to us because we have three pillars, business, value and people. And if you get the business and value right, maybe at, at times it works out well, but to get a compounder, to get one of those multi to get a career maker, I think you need the business value and people all together. And so that's why we spend the time on it.
0: Going back to Buffett again, I mean, he, he had some classic behavioral questions where I think the most famous might've been, if you could have a gun and shoot one competitor, who would it be? And that's such a good question. It just gets right to the matter of basically who's the best Who's the best in your industry that you know? We also call
1: competitors to the degree that we can. And if you want the bare case for your company, talk to somebody who works in sales for the competitor. They will give it to you. And and it's sometimes, you know what? Every once in a while, they'll be like, you know what? The competitor will say, they're just better than us. And that's what you want to hear, is a competitor who every day is out there fighting in the trenches to beat the company you're looking at but there's a recognition that whatever it is, the technology, the go-to-market strategy, the infrastructure, it's just better. And that's, I think, a really good endorsement when you hear someone else begrudgingly say, yeah, these guys are really good.
0: How much of your time is actually spent on these kind of more qualitative, I guess some of it's quantitative, but whether it's on the road or chatting with management, chatting with competitors, less the kind of hard quantitative screens, Sounds like it's a pretty significant amount.
1: Yeah. We're way more focused on the qualitative. And I don't want to diminish the importance of the quantitative side. But the reason why I talk about it this way is the quantitative side, everyone does that. Everyone has a model of some kind. Everyone does some of the parts. Like these are things that are that are standard. And everyone has a capital IQ or Bloomberg populated spreadsheet that can look at the returns on capital and say, is this a good business? Is this a bad business? So those there's some nuance there, and I'm generalizing a little bit, but for the most part, if you do that, if you if you just have Bloomberg. And some kind of dcf then you can cover the business and the value pretty well but the nuances of the business how do they really work and how does it what's a competitive set like what is the industry structure those are the things that's the really qualitative part and then the management part is basically 100 percent qualitative and so we i'll tell you like we were looking at a, an animal health company and it's a controlled company there's a there's a there's a controlling shareholder and we we wanted to meet the guy. So we couldn't even, it was one of those times where, where we went to New York and there was like no one else could take a meeting. So we, we flew to New York and drove to, drove to New Jersey just for a meeting. We spent 90 minutes with the CEO and he changed because you create these own narratives about Positive a company. Negative. <laughs> Positive. I think we thought of him as kind of, uh, I don't know what we thought, but he he came off as a very savvy capital allocator understood capital markets to a degree that we weren't sure of and understood you know, so many CEOs. And this is, it's just, it's its hard. Maybe you come up from sales and or maybe you're CFO and then you become a CEO. It's really hard to understand what people at our side of the table actually care about. And so a lot of the time you're talking to someone, there's no malice. There's no, they're not bad people. They just, they don't understand our framework and maybe they're really good at sales. Maybe they're really good at managing people. And so just, you know, having a dialogue helps you establish some good common ground. And so with this gentleman, I think he, he had it, like he gets it. He understands capital allocation. He understands what his company's worth and has an exit plan and talks candidly about those things, which a lot of people don't. So I think it's very important for us to in most of our investments meet management face to face, but for sure create a dialogue over the phone if if meetings, you know, within the timeframe don't make
0: sense. It's important. I mean, you touched on it a lot today. And I think the great book, The Outsiders, is one of the best about capital allocations. I mean, so many people, I mean, it's it's journalists, everyone that wants to be talking about a company, its success, its failure focuses purely on the sexy part, which is new products, performance, mergers and acquisitions. But as mentioned earlier, all those decisions matter across the whole quiver of capital allocation. Maybe it's taking on debt, paying it down, paying a dividend, all that fun stuff. Any resources that have been particularly influential for you over the years? Any books, any, it can be concepts, it can be anything else that uh, was a big influence to you? So, I'll give a couple of
1: things that maybe that are kind of top of mind. We just started to subscribe to a service called infiling. What infiling is, is it's a, it's kind of what they do is they scan companies, sec filings for changes. So one of the issues with doing what we do is you read a document But you don't have a whole lot of context regarding what was in the most the document the year before. So let's say we read the Q to 10 Q for a company. For this year. Well, what is, what did it say last year? Were there any changes? Were there any material changes? Did they change auditors? Did they, did they change their disclosure with their risk factors or something like that? So this, this interesting software goes through and it highlights changes. And so that you can see again, getting to the, the, you know, kind of the footnoted thing, like we read the footnotes, but the nuance there is that if you don't know what was in the previous footnote, you can't see what was changed. So you can look at it in a vacuum and say, all right, well, that seems kind of strange, but okay, well, but then you go back and you see, wow, look, they had a reserve that was 40 million last year, and now it's 200 million this year. Like, well, that's a big number. What's going on here? And so it's everything about our research in whether it's the business or management, we're looking for outliers. We're looking for things that stand out either positively or negatively. And this is just another way for us to monitor the way the companies file, the way the companies report, right? Are they changing their segments all the time? I mean, I've got a list of red flags here, the things that we look for. And are they changing the list of litigation, right? All of a sudden, a bunch of new lawsuits show up. And these are the things that are in the footnotes that are incredibly, they're written in legalese. They're dry. They're boring. It's even for someone who does this all the time, I'm not a lawyer, it's still very difficult to under, to totally parse all of the commentary, And so this, what it does is it's a quick way to to flag things. And so something has changed. We're going to read the Q and the K and the proxy anyway, but at least this gives you some context. And so again, it's all about, this is a portion of understanding management and understanding corporate governance. I think people underestimate press releases and Ks and Qs are very, very carefully written. No one's out there just like scribbling things. I mean, their lawyers have gone through this. The compliance officer has gone through this. They maybe even have the PR people going through this. Like, Everyone wants to think about the, you know, there's probably arguments whether it should be a the or an and, you know what I'm saying? These things are really well scrutinized. And so if companies make changes, it is deliberate. These are things that, well, outside of frauds, these are things that people can't hide. So that's a resource that we've started subscribing to. And it's, it's to some extent, it's a time saver. I mean, if you've ever been through an earnings season, I mean again i'm already, I'm complaining about quarterly earnings again maybe because we're in it and and maybe because i think it's just a, such a waste of time and it'd be great if companies reported once or twice a year instead of four times a year but when there's a million things going on and a bunch of companies are filing and things are whipping around even for long-term investors it's like you're drinking through a fire hose and to be able to have this in filing system to say hey, this company just filed a queue. They just changed their risk factors. Well, let's let's see what that is. And and for the most part, what is it going to do? It's It maybe leads to a call with management. Maybe we need to understand this better. But again, it's another dot on them paintings. And maybe it changes the picture a little bit the more of these things you, you put on there.
0: That's a good one. Never heard of it. Pretty interesting tool. We had a, one of our recent guests was Bill Martin who runs a hedge fund, but had helped start Insider Scores, yeah. which is another fun one that lets you track buying and selling from insiders. We've long been fans of looking at the filings of other fund managers to see what they're up to for idea generation. I was a podcast I was listening to the other day. I want to say it was with an Aussie short seller, Hempton. And he's talking about also following lists. He's like, success leaves traces, but the opposite is true, where you have just highly questionable, unethical CEOs that have failed Two, four, six, eight, 10 times in a row. He's like, that's a great list to have because if you're a newbie analyst, you come along and you don't have that piece of information. That's pretty useful information to have. You know, that this guy's just been consistent capital destroyer. Things like that, I think, are fascinating. Always a laundry list of more things to do. Anything else come to mind? Any other? Uh, Just a little note on that. I mean, the flip side is
1: also true. There are certain managers who we follow intentionally. So we say, well, there's a specific guy who owned a company that was it we that sold the company we owned. And we've been following him to try we're just waiting for him to pop up somewhere new. Someone who has successfully built and sold a number of businesses, those are the kind of capital allocators we want to partner with, right? I mean, you don't you don't get stupid overnight and right? And if you've been able to navigate the public waters and, and create value for shareholders multiple times, that sounds like someone who who understands how to make it work and understands being long term thinking about returns. These are the things that that we care about. And so it's not just a negative screen. It can be a very positive screen to see what people have done in the past.
0: Very cool. All right. So we got to start winding down. Can't keep you forever. We always ask people, love this question, in your own personal career. And this could be at Cove Street too. Any of the most memorable investment that you've ever had? Long, short, neither, both, good, bad, anything? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, anybody who knows me Will recognize that if there's any affliction I have, it is loss aversion. So I feel the pain of losses far more than the uh, euphoria of success. And so I don't want to talk about the company specifically, but I will talk about the circumstances and how it basically framed my view on investing in smaller companies. And so we had a retail oriented company that had a major customer. They'd been, the major customer had been with them for like 17 years. And one day that customer walked away and set off a spiral that this company has not been able to get out away from, right? So what happens when one of your customers walks away, you do whatever you can to plug that hole. There was a capital allocation decision an acquisition that was made that wasn't done particularly well. And this small company was not able to handle the fallout from a poor acquisition and losing its main customer. And what was a good returns company that had a CEO who'd come in and done a great job and had a multi bagger of a stock, now it's lost 90% of its value. What did that teach me? You know, you never want to gen- overgeneralize you don't want to just assume that every situation is going to be the same but i but here's here's what i really took away from that is you want to own businesses that can take a punch whether that's because they're large enough to take a punch or whether they have largest customers 1% and not 40% you want businesses that have Obviously, anti-fragility would be the best, but just some buffer against things going really poorly. And and what we see often in smaller companies is that they either have single market risk or customer concentration risk or product, you know, single product risk. If it's a medical device company, you know, inevitably bad things happen. And just like Buffett says, right, he guarantees at some point or at any moment there's someone at Berkshire Hathaway who's doing a bad thing, right? They have thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees. Someone's doing the wrong thing. One employee doing the wrong thing at Berkshire is probably not gonna bring down Berkshire. The CFO doing the wrong thing at a small publicly traded company could be the end of that company and the end of a zero in your investment. And so I'm not trying to denigrate smaller companies because this can happen in larger companies too, but the real point is be really careful about customer concentration, product concentration, you want to invest in businesses that have diversified revenue streams and divers- diversified customer basis and divers- diversified and market bases So that when that inevitable bump in the road happens, maybe your stock goes down, but you don't go from a $27 stock to a 40 cent stock. And so I think things happen like that, that become seared in your memory. And you, you know, I don't want to you don't want to just shy away from a, from an interesting business or an interesting group of people just because of, of some customer concentration. But I do think that by and large, if you avoid companies that will not be able to take a punch, you're much more likely to compound capital over, over time.
0: A really fun example, challenging too, though, because many of those cases, well, the concentration risk is obvious in, ahead of time, but how a company will handle it in some cases, it's like the psychological damage, not even at CEO level, but like employees who are like, oh my God, this company no longer has any future. I'm not getting good bonus this year. Morale just like goes out the door. And then
1: your sales go to, you know, new sales go to zero.
0: Yeah. And you lose people because they're like, whatever, I'm just, this is has no future. It's tough. And it could still be actually like a good business with bright prospects, but the mood has changed. I mean, I, you saw this so much in internet bubble aftermath and the last financial crisis, you know, so many companies that just never recovered. Even going back to the blog, like I go back and look at companies and links on things we used to write about that just no longer exist. And some of the reasons it was obvious in retrospect, but in many cases it's hard, but constant there's a concentration risk is a double edged sword. If we ask anyone who has exposure to China or like you mentioned earlier, or Amazon or anything else. It's tough. Does that company still exist?
1: It does still, still exist. Cents? Uh yeah, it's like it's it's sub a dollar.
0: This could be Ben's next step. He goes into the operating side of the business, takes over the business, does uh, a leverage buyout.
1: I, you know, I would sleep much better at night investing in a group of businesses that are getting more valuable every day, yeah. run by people who understand capital allocation better than I do. And I just, you know, just let them compound.
0: business side so much work so much work being an operator man entrepreneur it's just it never ends just daily assault from capitalists seven billion capitalists around the world you run a business here right i mean it's funny because like there's so much
1: people think this is such a glamorous business and there are incredible aspects of being a money manager and i tap dance to work i love what i do i love researching companies Maybe we start with the proxy statement as an under discussed item. And the other thing is the business of investment management and the people think that you spend all your time as an active manager on your stocks. And it's just not possible because you're running a business, you're running a portfolio and you have really demanding customers. And so, and then Buffett says it's but, you know he's a better manager, he's a better investor because he's a business owner, and and vice versa. And I, I think that's it is hard, but I think it also makes you more appreciative of your partners in terms of man, company management teams and the board. It's it's just because you're sitting behind your desk reading their 10K and thinking this is so easy. Why aren't they doing this? Well, because these are run by people. And they have people and you no know, and and they have mouths to feed and they have employees that they don't want to fire. And so it's not being involved in the business size makes you, I think, a little more empathetic when especially when things aren't going right in the companies you own.
0: Well, you mentioned it earlier in the very beginning, as you're talking about Co Street. I think people often will say this about the advantage of having a legit operational and philosophical structure to the company, to where it runs on a certain professional level. That's really important. And I joke that most people probably at the UCLA class think our world is more like Bobby Axelrod on billions when it's, yeah. pro- it's probably more like The Office. I don't know. I don't know what show to compare it to, but it's not necessarily flying around in jets and hot trading stocks all day long and the excitement of being courtside at Knicks. Knicks may not be the best example. They've been in the toilet for 10 years. Clippers. Yeah, man, we're going to have some exciting home teams. Uh, yeah, we have a new team now, basically. Yeah. Soon to be sponsored by Cove Street Capital. I look forward to you guys getting some season tickets courtside, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the value investors uh, will be in the upper upper deck.
1: Yeah, maybe when the next market <laughs> downturns and people remember why value investors and active investors still exist. That's funny.
0: Man, this has been a blast. We'll have to do this more often. Where do people go to find more information?
1: Yeah, so we spent a lot of time curating our website and our blog. So uh, com. if you go to our web blog, our thoughts tab, you'll see there's a fair amount of posting. I post a fair amount. It's part of our job. Jeff Bronchick says that we're going to get fired if we don't contribute to the blog because it's called Cove Street Capital. It's not called Bronchick Capital. It's called Cove Street for a reason. I mean, there's this business is set up to survive Jeff whenever he's 97 and wants to retire. I could see him doing it longer than Munger He wants all of us to have a voice. So you'll find a fair amount of content and videos and, you know, letters and stuff like that. So I think if you're interested in Cove Street, you can even, you know, Meb was talking about our process and strategy. You can see that we're not a black box. You can learn all about us just by clicking some of the the links on our site. Is Munger, he's like
0: 90, he's not 95, is he? I think he's in his 90s. Yeah, he's in his 90s. Incredible. Listeners, if you get a chance, go to the Daily Journal meeting in LA. Let me know next time. I'll join you. I've been once. Have you ever been? I have. It's great.
1: I have. He's great in person. And and a, he's if you've been to a Berkshire meeting, he's you feel like he's a little bit restrained because of so many people. When you go to the Daily Journal, you get, you know, you get full, monger. full monger, which is which is brilliant in a
0: lot of ways. We'll add all those show note links. Ben, it's been so much fun. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Really enjoyed it. Listeners, we'll post links to Cove Street, everything else. Good we chatted about today at medfavor.com forward slash podcast. You can send us any critiques, reviews, thoughts, suggestions, feedback at the MebFavorShow.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Radio Public, Breaker, anywhere good podcasts are sold. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.